0: All right. Dun, dun, dun. Welcome (laughs) to the Launch School Season 3 podcast. Yay! Woo! (laughs) Um, My name is Janae. I'm a current student at Launch School. I am currently in course LS225 or JS225. I'm not quite sure. It's the second to the last course, and so I've been at Launch School for about a year now.
1: Wow. This means you are well nigh a good expert. So we're going to talk about expertise today, which is going to be awesome. And Mandy.
2: My name is Mandy Chang, and I am currently a student at Launch School. I've been here for almost, yeah, well over a year now, and I'm in the JS215 course. I'm also a computer science major in university. And today we're going to be talking about learning with a very, very special guest, Barbara Oakley. Yeah, that's me
1: in case you didn't know. (laughs) Dr.
2: Barbara Oakley is an expert on learning and learning how to learn. Barbara is an engineering professor at Oakland University with decades of experience in math and science, as well as a background in humanities and social sciences. Barbara is also a celebrity within the Launch School community because her learning course is a prerequisite to starting Launch School's core curriculum. From my own personal experience, her techniques on learning have drastically changed the trajectory of my life, and I'm certain this is true for many other students at Launch School. I'm so honored to have you here with us today, Barbara.
1: Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Okay, so more behind the scenes. So they prepared these incredible questions for me. And I'm looking at the list of questions and they're really good and there are like so many of them. So this is the kind of care and preparation that has gone on before this actual podcast. So I think it's going to be a very good one. And some of the questions are tough. So we'll see if I can actually answer them.
2: Ooh, the pressure's on. (laughs) The pressure's
1: on, yes.
2: Yeah, so we'll love to hear more about you and your journey and how you got to where you are today because I found your background really inspiring for me because you were in a non-technical field and you transitioned into engineering. Previously, you studied uh, Slavic languages and literature and worked as a Russian translator for many years. And I think a lot of launch school students can relate because launch school students had a previous career in something else before they got went into law school and started studying software engineering. So with your background as a Russian translator, how did your first career choice help with studying math and science? Were there any obvious or non-obvious transferable skills? Oh, very
1: good question. So the short story, which I, I think you all probably already know, is that I was a miserable failure at math and science through elementary middle and high school and so i i had this bright idea i was like you know i can't do anything technical that's like way out of my league so but i maybe i can learn a new language which i know some of you are like that's like falling off a log. I speak two languages, three languages or whatever. But for me, especially at that time, which was um, too long ago to mention, at that time in the U.S., you know, it wasn't quite so common to have uh, bilingual uh, individuals. And and I just, I thought, wouldn't it be cool to like look at the world and think about it in a different way using different words? So I decided I wanted to learn another language. And I, I remember telling my dad, you know, I want to go to the university and I want to learn another language really well. And he's like, well, not on my dime. (laughs) You can go do whatever you want, but you can't really get a job doing something like that. So of course, in my adolescence, I thought I knew better than anyone else. So I just thought, I looked around and I found out that if you joined the Army, they would pay you to learn a language. And I thought, man, <laughs> have I got my dad outsmarted now. All I got to do is join the Army. So I tell my dad, yeah, I'm going to join the Army. They're going to teach me how to speak another language, and they're going to pay me for doing it. And he just laughed. He was like, oh, boy. You're going to learn another language and a lot more. And he was right because there's a lot of hurry up and wait and doing what they say in the army, which I wasn't particularly fond of. But at the same time, I was sent to the Defense Language Institute where I um, spent about a year and a half studying Russian very intensively. And did very well, got an in-service scholarship, so that allowed me to go to University of Washington and complete my first degree in Slavic languages and literature, and I was on top of the world. I was doing what everyone told me to do, which is to follow your passion. And so I followed my passion right into a little box, because when the military commissioned me as an officer, they made me a signal officer, and... That meant, that didn't mean talking to people, that meant like hooking in cable systems and switchboards and all of these kinds of radio systems and so forth. And I had no clue. I mean, I didn't even know. It's like, oh, you got an electrical circuit? Well, so, you know, the signal goes out, but why does it have to come back? You know, I mean, what's what's with this two-wire business? I knew nothing. So I was probably if you gave awards for world's worst signal officer in the army i would be a top contender for that and but i i was a signal officer for 4 years and i went to get out of the military and then found out that hey as many of you may have discovered uh, this idea of following your passion may not be all it's cracked up to be because what it's doing is it's allowing you to selfishly pursue only what interests you with no greater context or perspective on what the world is actually looking for. So I thought about it and I thought, well, heck, you know, all all my colleagues were getting jobs easy as can be because they had engineering degrees. I thought, well, maybe I should look at getting an engineering degree. But that meant learning math and learning about technology. So I just, when I got out, I was 26, started with remedial high school uh, algebra and began slowly climbing my way up. And the higher I went, the better I got. And this is really, grows right from what we know from neuroscience. If you build a neural architecture, it's easier to add more to that neural architecture. If you have no neural architecture, getting started is hard. But once you get over that initial hurdle, which most people can do, you can, you can really start building things or, and becoming comfortable and even gaining mastery over the material you're learning. So one day, one of my students, after I became a professor of engineering, and incidentally, I was recently made a distinguished professor of engineering, I was like, oh my gosh, have I ever fooled them. But, you know, my students said, how did you do it? How would you change your brain? And I thought, well, you know, how did I do that? And part of it was to learn some of the insight or to apply some of the insights I had learned about how to learn a language well. To learning in math and science well. And that was really helpful. We often just don't realize how our previous skills of learning things actually can, can be transferred even to things that seem like they have nothing to do with what you're learning, what you're planning to learn.
0: That's amazing. I feel like so many people at Launch School can empathize with your journey not because they joined the army and you know (laughs) became an expert at one thing and then but because so many people are on their own journey of discovering how to learn and how to actually create like a career and a lifestyle and get somewhere that they never necessarily imagined themselves to be I, I think both Mandy and I neither of us liked math growing up I think I actually hated it. <laughs> but then again, like all of the I guess subjects that came easier for me like English or languages were the subjects that I didn't feel like I had to put effort into or study or, you know, apply myself to. Like I felt like they all came naturally and math was always the zone of like don't go there. <laughs> it's
2: <Yes>. impossible.
1: <laughs> well, I think one interesting thing for women in in, in the in STEM careers is, well, a, a major thing for me is I've often been helped by the men I've worked with. So it's, you, you will find jerks everywhere, in every discipline. And if you focus on the jerks, you're always going to be unhappy. But if you focus on the the far greater percentage of people who are willing to and want to really help you, you will be very happy I should point out that the field of nursing, for example, is known for a a phenomenon called eating their young, and that is they can be so cruel to young nurses that half of all nurses, actually, it turns out, quit the profession after they've trained for many years. So, you know, I, I would not ever think that STEM disciplines are, you know, inordinately horrible to women, because that's just not true. You know, you'll find great people that will really help you. But another thing that I think is really important, and this, Janae, is where you and I really share some background, is it was always easy for me to learn verbally. Anything that was more verbally oriented is like, I got this. But it turns out that little boys and little girls have a differing bath on average of of hormones. And uh, testosterone has a very strange effect. So you might say, well, does it, boys have testosterone better, you know, bigger amounts of it. Does it make their math better? No, it doesn't. In fact, testosterone has no effects on math abilities so in fact little boys and little girls when they're maturing they grow up and they have on average the same abilities in math and science where they differ however is in verbal skills Mm -hmm. testosterone the more testosterone you have the more and this is on average and there is other factors and so forth but the the more you have the more it retards retards or or de-advances. It brings behind your ability to learn verbally. The less of it you have, the more you advance in your ability to learn verbally. So what this means is, on average, little boys' verbal abilities are reduced in comparison with their math abilities. Little girls, on the other hand, their verbal abilities are enhanced by comparison with their math abilities. So, even though little boys and little girls have, on average, the same abilities in math and science, little girls look within themselves and go, I'm better verbally. I'm better verbally than I am at math. And it's true, you know, because they've got that advancement in their verbal abilities. And a little boy will look within himself and say, you know, I'm better at math than I am verbally, because it's true. I mean, they're verbal abilities got delayed because of the testosterone even though on average they both have the same math skills so when we tell people follow your passion what we're actually saying oftentimes is i mean people will fall they their passions develop about what they're good at what they find naturally easy so when we say follow your passion we're really saying to little girls go do verbal things we're saying to little boys go do math things you know and that's not really what the intention is but that's what the result is going to be so that's why i so strongly emphasize don't say follow your passion say broaden your passions mm-hmm. because little girls to be as good verbal or at math as they are with their high verbal skills, they just need to practice more, but then they'll really be good. And likewise for little boys to be as good um, at writing and verbal things as they are with their math, they need to practice those skills more. So it's just simply a question of what you put your practice into and, and, and trying to, whatever you're good at, try to bring your other skills up so that you're you're much more well-rounded because that's going to open career doors.
2: Yeah, I feel like I relate to what you said so much because when I started university, I actually went into nursing and it, it was a really difficult field to be in, but I had gone into it because my teachers told me, you're good at talking to people and you have good grades in biology. So I chose that and avoided anything that was math related. And when nursing didn't work out, I switched my degree to geography, which was the only degree that didn't have any math. So I was like, yes, I'm good to go, except I didn't read the fine print because in my last semester, I took I had to take calculus to graduate. And that's when I picked up your book, A Mind for Numbers. And when I read your story about when you were younger and you loathed math and science and flunked algebra, I'm like, that that's me. Like maybe I could do it too. And, and like all of this, what you said, Barbara, about learning the little pieces and getting over the humps that you're, you don't know as a student. and then once you get over that, then you keep going moving forward. And then until you reach the next hump, and then you figure that out and you keep going. And yep. that, that was like a game changer for me.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Sometimes just these little tricks of learning. And I think one of the biggest things that I did that was right when I was trying to retrain my brain is I started at a very, very low level. I was just like, call me humble. Because I'm just going to start at the bottom, and the bottom was remedial high school algebra that was as low as you could possibly go, couldn't get any credit for it or anything like that. But what that did was it gave me the slow kind of way of starting with the material that and it takes time to rewire your brain, and I was just kind of patient with myself that way, but it was I have to say that first year was really scary because. You know, you're sitting there going, you know, I'm putting all my eggs in one basket. I'm trying to retrain What if it doesn't work? What if I turn out to be an idiot and I can't learn this stuff? But by taking it slow and, you know, not trying to be a superstar in my learning and taking all these different classes, but just really going slow and steady and learning as well as I could, that was what did the trick. And I still remember I was taking introductory uh, chemistry. And there was this one guy, and he was like, you know, super smart guy. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting next to me. We always sat in the front row. And so we we took a test, the first test, and I, I did quite well. In fact, I did even better than he did. And I remember him looking at me, kind of like, so then the next midterm we had, he borrowed my calculator. And at that time you could take a calculator and just by pressing a few buttons, you could completely clear the memory of the calculator. So he borrowed it and he cleared the memory because he's thinking I've entered all this stuff in because I didn't know it here. I just knew it in my calculator. But of course, I knew it up, up in my brain. I didn't have it you know, so that I could always look it up on my calculator. So I just took it back and, you know, just did all my stuff. And I remember him just kind of like, huh, I guess she's not cheating, you know, she's not. But it really can be valuable in far more circumstances than just somebody borrowing and zeroing out your calculator to have important information absolutely inside your brain. So if you have key equations you're learning, key algorithms you're learning, whatever, to have that inside. Poets often say, memorize the poem and you will understand it more deeply. But why should we let all the poets have all the fun, right? Because it really does. Memorizing things helps you to understand them more deeply, especially if while you're memorizing, you're thinking about what you're memorizing. Oh, why is that multiplying? Why is that dividing? So these kinds of little... um, insights and and as you said going bit by bit can be invaluable in learning
0: yeah I think that going bit by bit really reshaped how I learned because back in high school when I would take math classes I would even though I was terrible at math I would still insist on enrolling in the advanced classes because that's where my friends were and then I want to understand anything and I would be like sitting in the background in the back of the room like crying and like staring at my teacher across the room and she'd just be like, I don't know, what's your problem? Why can't you keep up?
1: Yep, yep.
0: <laughs> and it was really only like when I approached launch school and I came at it with this idea that, you know, I know absolutely nothing about programming. What is code? What goes on behind the scenes? I don't even know if I'm going to like this, but there is this idea that, you know, it's a it's a skill that I can learn. It's doable. Other people have gone before me. Other people have been very successful at it. And step by step, I can do it. I think that was my biggest breakthrough.
1: I think that you're exactly right. I have to tell the story of two neuroscientist wannabes. So these were both preeminent professors of physics at a top-ranked university in the US. And they both decided they were gonna switch to neuroscience and start doing research. One of them opened up a laboratory, got millions of dollars of funding because he was a big name guy. And within two years, his lab closed. It was completely defunct and everything had crashed and burned that he was trying to do. The other guy went, he gave up his tenured position, instead, Uh, going off to become a postdoc in a lab from this guy at another university, spent like four or five years working as a postdoc. Can you imagine coming down from being a full professor, working as a postdoc in this guy's lab, getting all the insight, taking all the basic courses he needed and so forth. And he eventually... Has become renowned within the field of of neuroscience because he's come up with such innovative uh, ideas and work and breakthroughs. So his willingness to just say, "Okay, I know nothing. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna give it up. I'm gonna use beginner's mind and I'm gonna start as low as I reasonably can. Take a lot of undergraduate courses. Take everything I need. And and that's what did it. And just by you know, think, oh, you know, I'm just going to waltz in here and do all this stuff. That That's, that's just not the right approach. And so I think a lot of what the boot camp does is, is helps people get grounded with a good beginner's mind. And that's one of the best ways possible to start.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We focus so much on just building the fundamentals, building everything from like the tiniest little building blocks because, you know, in the in the software development industry, things are changing all this all the time. Like no matter if you learn the latest framework or, you know, the trendiest programming language, by the time you're actually getting into the field, you might have to learn a completely different language or you might have to completely work on things that you've never had experience before. And so, I think What the really cool thing about Launch School is there's so much of a focus on learning how to learn the fundamentals and then how to apply them in different new scenarios, almost like a creative application of learning things just in time for them to come into play.
1: That's a magnificent approach. It is really, it's just, to my mind, it's just so interesting that universities and k-12 schools don't teach you anything about how to learn they don't teach you how to break things up into smaller chunks or you know but i think part of that is because well i mean this is the curmudgeon in me but there's there's two things they don't teach you they don't teach you about personal finance and they don't teach you about how to learn effectively And it's pretty obvious, you know, I mean, you don't want competition. You want them to rely on you as the teacher. And then you don't want them thinking about the finances of whether or not, you know, the cost benefit of taking a certain program, which you followed your passion to do, is actually going to be rewarding for you in the long run. So I, I do get a bit jaded about regular university programs just because... I mean, we all have to watch out for the fact that we, universities love to say, well, big pharma, they're evil, you know, and and corporations are evil, but they don't turn around and point the camera right at themselves and say, they're really in it for the money. And if you're a professor, it's how many dollars can you bring in? It's, you know, it's it's really a very corporate kind of world. And it's also institutionalized. So they do not, like if a discipline goes out of fashion or people don't aren't interested anymore, that doesn't matter because you still got these professors and you don't want to, you know, they don't want to be fired. So they're going to, you know, so it turns into this big, just there's so much institutional inertia involved in teaching the way they have always taught and not changing at all there's, you know, big, big inertial forces to try to prevent any kind of new learning that actually can be very beneficial for students in today's society, which is why, you know, what you're doing can be so incredibly important. What you're learning through the camp is so, is, can be so valuable. It jumps out of that box of the stogy traditional approaches to learning and actually gives people what they need.
2: Yeah, that is so true. Like, One of the best things I find about Launch School is that like the prerequisite course, it's completely free. And that also includes taking the learning how to learn course. And then once you enroll, it's a monthly subscription. So if anything happens like in your life or you need time off, you can unsubscribe. You don't have to do any payments and then continue your learning at your own pace. And it's like a mastery based learning approach. So you take the assessment when you are ready and I felt like that was such a relief for me in launch school because in university it's like oh no like I'm sick this week but I have an exam next week and I couldn't get enough hours studying and it it always felt like I had to meet somebody else's deadline and so I I just love like the launch schools like mastery-based learning and even going through it like I'm it's at my own pace, but I'm also learning how to learn as well. And that changes over time. I try different things and sometimes I revert back to my old habits, but then I have time to go back and then review again my learning techniques as well as the material at my own pace. And once I know I'm ready, I'll take the assessment and ace it.
1: You are a walking advertisement for why these new approaches to learning are, are so valuable and so helpful and why we should all be doing our best to take advantage of it.
0: Yeah, I'd be curious to know, you know, one of the my favorite ways to learn is through teaching people things. And so I was just wondering how in your classroom you apply some of the knowledge that you have about how people learn and how you think teaching should go, what that looks like.
1: Well, let's see. First, I've done a lot of online teaching, obviously, but even in my face-to-face classes, it's often online or has a major online component. And so I have to put in a, you know, a sort of a, I have to tout online learning to the extent that, well, my favorite athlete is Julius Iago. And he was from Kenya. And you know, Kenya is very famous for their long distance runners. But Julius always wanted to be a, a javelin thrower. But there are no javelin throwing coaches in all of Kenya. And also... He couldn't afford to go anywhere else and study. So he just started studying online. He would watch a really good javelin thrower teaching some of the techniques. Then he'd go out and practice, come back and watch, go out and practice. Do you know that 99% just by watching YouTube videos, he became the world champion in throwing the javelin? So I think that online learning has a, a lot of great You know, it gets framed to people as it's a bad thing. But actually, that's just because universities have a vested interest in making you want to go into face-to-face classes. The reality is we learn by careful explanation and then practice. So if we get careful explanation where we can stop the teacher wherever we lose track, and then think about what they're saying, rewind it a little bit, maybe get back on track. We prevent all this wasted time where you're taking notes, but not understanding what the teacher is actually saying. It's just a much more cost-effective and time-effective use of, of you know, the teaching platform. But it also just gives you, you know, you can do it at your own pace uh, and at the times that work for you and so forth. So, uh, so I made, even in my face-to-face classrooms, I usually did things flipped. So I had people watch videos at home and then they would actively practice when we got together. When I would uh, teach, I often, so... Nowadays I often I'm so involved in making moocs that I often don't teach face-to-face classes much as much now. But what I often like to do was have students come up and explain difficult aspects of material and i usually kind of check to see that they weren't too far off track, you know, cuz I never wanted anybody to look too bad, unless they were super cocky or something and needed <laughs> but but Retrieval practice, we know, is one of the most powerful ways to help students learn. That means, you know, like not just looking at an algorithm but actually being, you know, looking away from it and seeing if you can write that algorithm yourself. You know, internalizing, checking through flashcards or or looking away and seeing if you can retrieve the key bits of information from your own mind. It turns out that teaching is so valuable because it's a form of retrieval practice. When you're getting up and explaining it to others, you're actually retrieving that information from your own brain as you're explaining it to others. So it is a profoundly valuable way of, of teaching others. When I, when I would do face-to-face, I would often build piece-by-piece whatever uh, information I was giving that's easy to do on a chalkboard, but on online, the tendency can be to, to say, well, here's this image from a textbook. I'll we'll put it all up there, and it's there, so you can see it all. Uh, but that's not how people learn. So even with what I present on PowerPoints or, or in video, I would I would build a, an illustration piece by piece. So I'm talking about one part and then they gradually see the whole of it. These, this kind of attention to detail is often not taken in face-to-face teaching, surprisingly enough. People will just, they'll have their PowerPoints and they'll just walk through a big series of pictures and it's really hard to grasp all the key ideas because it's all thrown at you kind of at once. There's ways to attract people's attention by having subtle use of movement, little bits of surprise going on that's so easy to do online. It's a little harder to do in the classroom because I mean, I'm not the kind of person that jumps up on a desk, surprise, and surprises people that way. Some people are really effective teachers that way, but you know, I'm always kind of clumsy, so I'd be falling off the desk if I tried to do that. But you can do all sorts of really cool and surprising things online. For example, I I might, you know, like one of the courses that editor right now is, he's got me, I'm talking, and my head flips open. There's like a little pink, cute-looking brain inside. And, you know, and then the stuff is being pushed in and it's like all the squeezing noise and then the brain you know and it's so surprising and out of the blue that you're kind of like what the heck uh but it's cool and and these kind of little surprises can super help people to you know to learn and enjoy what they're learning and with economies of scale with online learning you you can do great things in helping people enjoy what they're learning and also helping make it stick better And I have just realized because my computer just came up and said, do you know how many spaces I have available in my computer's memory is zero. So it's all these videos I've just been helping produce lately. And so I hope my, I hope we don't crash and burn. If we do, you'll know why it happened.
0: Behind the scenes.
1: <laughs> yeah, another, I better make myself, I'm gonna make myself a note now say, fix disk. So, I got to take a bunch of stuff off my disk. Otherwise, my computer will be unhappy with me.
2: I was wondering, Barbara, since you have so many techniques for learning, back in the day when um, you started out learning Russian and math and science, like who was the Barbara Oakley for you? Like who influenced you and who did you, who did you look up to in, in just like learning how to learn?
1: You know, it's not in any particular technique. It's simply, my father was just open to letting you do your own thing. And so if I wanted to learn a language, he's not gonna pay for it, but you know, if I wanted to do that, by all means, be my guest. One time though, he did change how I was approaching things. Mm And that was when the Russian um, translator company called me and said, we'd like you to work uh, out on Russian trawlers as a translator. And I was really into chemistry at the time. I I was like, finally, you know, it was after I'd come back and I, you know, was starting to learn math, I was starting to be effective at this stuff. And I'm like, you mean I'm supposed to drop what I'm doing this summer and go out and work on Russian trawlers? So I said, no, you know, I'm I'm getting going at the university. And I I came back and, you know, I was with my father at the time visiting out at his place on the Olympic Peninsula. And and I said, "Ah," you know, I turned him down and he says, you did what? You did what? Well, Next thing you know, I call him back up and said, "You know, I'm interested in that job after all." So, and he was simply, you know, that's a tremendous opportunity and adventure, and you really don't want to turn that down. So, I think he was all about the the adventure, the opportunity, the idea of gaining new perspectives and learning new things. So, he he really modeled that in his life. He it was. I mean, he was a bomber pilot during World War II. Virtually his entire class, he got pneumonia, so he was not sent to uh, Europe. And everyone else in his class was sent to Europe, and they all died. And so he, he just, he looked like a skeleton, and he was very fortunate to survive the, the pneumonia. But then afterwards, he was flying, after the war, he flew planes back and forth to Johnston Atoll you know, which is way out past Hawaii or something from White Sands, New Mexico. And one day he took off and it was like a 13, 14 hour flight or something. And so he's full of fuel and his landing gear did not retract. Mm. So what do you do? You you don't know if you can land safely. So they had him circle the airport for nearly 14 hours to run out of fuel and then as he was running out of fuel, you know, it the last, so it lightened the plane and made it less likely to explode on uh, landing. And then he landed with no landing gear and slid all the way to the end and was like just two feet off the edge of the runway and, and they lived. But he decided to you know, maybe I should change my career. Uh, yeah, I can imagine like circling for 14 hours and reflecting on your life, you know, and knowing all your friends have died in plane crashes. And uh, so he became uh, a veterinarian and he was always just very interested in new things. He, he devised a, a mechanism where you could kind of shoot a pellet into a cow and give them, you know, a vaccination that way or give them penicillin. And saved a lot of cattle's life, you know, cows' lives, because they get really afraid when you're chasing after them, and if they're really sick to start with, you can just kill them by that. And he, he was always coming up with new inventions and new things. So, and he, he liked learning about new things, and I still miss him. It's 20 years later, but I, I just miss it, miss the idea of, you know, just chatting about whatever is currently, you know, I'm currently learning and, or that he's currently into. So uh, I I think just that attitude of being interested in things, he was my model, my role model.
0: He sounds amazing. Yeah, Yeah. it's wonderful.
1: Yeah. Some of my earliest memories are, I would, I loved going out with him. He, He specialized in cattle and I loved going around with him. So I I must have been about three years old and he'd take me with him and then he'd park me in the manger where the calves would eat from. So I'd kind of stay in there and I'd just be petting their little wet noses and I'd be eating their food with them. And I just was so happy. So my my earliest memories when I smell something called calf manna, which is that food for calves, I'm like, ah, brings back memories but one time i remember he 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 sat me in the car you know i was there and so he had to run in and get some more stuff of some sort so he had his medicine box with all his medicines between us he says now barb don't you open anything here you just sit here i'm just gonna run in and i'll be right back i'm like four years old or something so first thing i do as soon as he uh, runs in the house I take one of the bottles I open it up you know, kind of smell a little put the lid back put it back down he never knew that I'd open I had opened it up first thing you tell me don't do something you know I, I can't help it but often my first reaction is really let's see if we can open that up see what's behind it so and that's often been a good thing in my life but sometimes not so good because uh People can be a little unexpected at what you can uncover. So it's been an interesting life, that curiosity.
0: Yeah, I think that curiosity is so important in like discovering the world and learning new things. Is there anything that you're currently learning?
1: Well, I make a habit of, so, you know, in the learning how to learn, I I send out that Cheery Friday email every Friday. I still get that. (laughs) Yeah, I write it all. And I use, you know, first person plural, we, because it makes me sound like more elite. And besides, I can make fun of me if I'm, I'm speaking about it as if I'm not actually me. But, you know, what is it? I think as Mark Twain said, the only people that can say, that can use we are kings, editors, and people with tapeworms. And I still laugh at that. But so for that, I, I I read that book every week, which is the book I tout. And so I, I think this really keeps me broad in my learning because I can pick the book about whatever I want. So recently it was the, the book of why by Judea Pearl about causality tomorrow's email which i will be finalizing as soon as we get off is is going to be about the cattle kingdom so it's a book of the history of the the cows and cattle industry in the midwest and uh, and so what's next week's going to be probably the history of the brain because i'm almost done with the book on that but i've got several other books i usually keep several books going on at once and uh, so that's my learning is to try and broaden things. I also do a lot of reading of neuroscience papers to, to just try and keep up. And, it, of course, it's overwhelming, but there's real nuggets that are useful for all of us. And so I'm always kind of pouring through those those recent papers to see what I can find. My, my latest area of fascination is the procedural learning system, which is really important in coding. And my next work will... Will is looking to be a, a set of online courses for future learn, including advice f- for those learning to code and, mm-hmm. and language learning and so forth, but all growing from our understanding of the procedural system. But, so it's going to be fun.
2: That sounds super interesting. I can't wait for those courses to come out. <laughs>
1: well, right now I'm finishing three MOOCs, on Uncommon Sense Teaching, which is a book I have coming out now with my co-authors, Beth Bergowski and Terrence Sanowski. And so this new set of courses is based on that. And I'm telling you, it's like crazy busy work because I I script everything. So this is, we're talking for for scripting of three massive open online courses, that's about 120,000 words. So a typical book has around 70,000 words. So it's like writing a book and a half And that's not even all the instructions to the video editors. And then you're working with video editors, which if you have a good video editor is like so awesome because they have these really fun ideas and you get to bounce things back and forth. But it's extremely time consuming. And as you know, coming up with all the multiple choice questions and all this kind of thing, it's my summer is really cut out for me this summer.
0: Yeah, it sounds like... You keep busy and you do so many things and you're so productive all the time. You mentioned your computer running out of memory. Do you ever feel like you're going to run out of memory?
1: Oh, well, actually our so our real memories are they for all intents and purposes virtual, virtually in infinite. So the real problem is you can have so much information in there that it can be hard to find the information. So, so that I do sometimes struggle with, especially as like, you know, you're giving a presentation, you give another one, another one, another one, and you're like, oh, did I say that already in this presentation? What if I didn't? Oh no. You know, and so you're kind of standing there trying to look like you know what you're doing and inside you're going, did I already say that? Oh, I hope they're not, you know, I hope they don't notice. And so it's kind of a funny thing.
2: I have one more question for you, Barbara. As a female engineering professor, did you ever have challenges like being a minority in this field? And, like, did you, like, how did you overcome challenges if there were any?
1: Well, to be honest, I feel I was treated preferentially. I feel that being a woman helped me get hired more easily. I've had actual advantages in STEM because of because of the fact that I'm a woman. So I I think that there's a welcome, open arms uh, kind of attitude by many. Will you find some jerks? Yeah, but you're going to find jerks, I don't care where you work. The main thing to me is that I have much more say-so in my job in a STEM discipline than I ever would unless I was exceptionally lucky in a discipline that is non-STEM. So it's, the pay is often lower for a person who's not, you know, doesn't have some technical kind of expertise. The opportunities for advancement can be limited. You often, you know, just because of these kinds of things, you're you can be looked down upon as someone who's just not smart enough to get these kinds of things. And the reality is you can be just as smart or smarter than the person who's looking down on you. But because you don't have that technical expertise, you you know, it's hard to, it's hard to like show them up. I remember when I just had my degree in Slavic languages and literature, I'd look at these engineers and I'd be like, you know, they do seem to be able to solve problems better than I can. Is it that they're just smarter and I'm kind of more stupid? A- and I couldn't help but almost think that that must be the case. But now I realize, no, I'm, I'm just as smart. In fact, many times even smarter than than they were, but it's just I didn't have that simple, well, not necessarily always simple, but I didn't have that training that allowed me to think about problems in a new way that allowed me to be much more effective you know in solving problems so i i do think that the lack of good stem education in this country is kind of a crime i think the way that math for example is taught in this country is often is not only harming students abilities in math and science it's actually crippling their ability to learn effectively in math and science and many of the reform approaches to teaching in math and science which denigrate ideas like drilling for example in order to skill i mean drill provides skill but they'll say drill kills right you drill and kill Uh, But the problem is what they've done is they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. They've said procedural learning is all not to be done, except in ways that are really convoluted. But we know now that the brain learns through both declarative, hippocampal ways of learning and procedural, habitual, basal ganglia forms of learning. And when you throw out that habitual form of learning, which is the big way you learn through practice and through drill, you're throwing out and crippling students' abilities to learn well. So I, I, it just makes me so sad because so many kids from the U.S. grow up thinking they can't do math and science. And it's it's not that they got a bad teacher here or there. that threw them offline, although that can happen. It's that the entire educational approach used to teach math is crippling students' abilities to teach math. So you got me on my high horse there.
0: (laughs) I'm curious to know, do you have any advice specifically for learning how to code? You mentioned you have a course coming out about procedural learning and coding.
1: So I'm going to step back, way back, and just think at a meta level. So when you're learning something procedurally, like when you're a little kid, you learn how to speak a language because you hear a lot of instances of it and you are trying to speak it so you learn it through that basal ganglia procedural system by lots of practice and lots of trying to speak it yourself so when you're learning to code it's important to to pick the most like the most the key algorithms that you're trying to work with internalize learn and what you wanna do is you wanna be able to write that algorithm out, that you have practiced it so much that you can pull it to mind almost like you're singing a song. Oh, oh, that algorithm, oh yeah, got that. You pull it to mind like you're singing a song and it's instantly all right there. You're creating one temporally connected chunk in your mind. When you can do this with lots of different algorithms and the more you do it, so it's like so easy, you can pull it to mind instantly. The more you're putting together the building blocks so that later you can easily say, oh yeah, all I have to do is, oh no, I'll take this and this and this and my problem is solved. So it's, it's what you really want to do is you want to create these in the same sense that a musician learns small pieces of music, and they practice them, and they get they can they got it by heart. Then they practice the next piece, then the next piece, and gradually they string it all together so they can sing. You know, they can sing a song, play a song, and they know it inside and out. You want to gain that expertise with your coding ability by by internalizing these key chunks of information. And if, if you internalize them, it, it will allow you to gain an intuition about which, what algorithm to use, which approach to take. And so internalizing the key, key ideas, knowing them by heart so that you can just haul them out of your own head You know, if you're out walking, you go through the series of what you're learning that day. Practice with it so it gets really fast in your mind. And that's what's getting your procedural learning system in place. That is the basis of your intuition of becoming a really good coder.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Launch School has an approach where we don't even start looking at algorithms, really, or, you know, the the more defined algorithms that a lot of people... Study when they start studying programs programming we start by building the problem-solving skills so we're writing our own algorithms and experimenting with a whole different set of uh, learning how to solve a problem and then you know eventually after you can solve a problem and write your own algorithm and you know maybe it's not so efficient maybe it's not the prettiest code ever Eventually you get to the point where you learn the actual algorithms, but then you already know exactly what's going on because you've experimented 15 different ways of how to do it wrong or how to do it differently or how to do it more creatively, I guess.
1: And and see, this is fantastic approach because ultimately you want to know that most efficient algorithm by heart. So you can instantly, but to get there, you're, best way to hook you into learning that algorithm, the really good one, is to have you propose what your algorithm is that will do it and and then start seeing the mismatch between what your algorithm is and how it could be better. That mismatch is what uh, propels the uh, release of dopamine in your brain that actually reinforces the learning you know that is taking place as you're going through so like if you didn't if you didn't project what you think it should be you you can still learn it but you don't have that curiosity so much and you also don't have quite the same release of dopamine So, you know, the approach I'm saying is a good foundational approach, but going even deeper and doing it even better is exactly what you're doing.
0: Yeah, that rush of dopamine is really what got me hooked on coding in the first place. You know, I I didn't think that I would enjoy it at all. I thought I was coming into a career that I'd probably hate, but I could probably force my way through if I wanted it badly enough for, you know, like for the salary, for the future career. Right. But once I got into that problem solving and I started, you know, things started connecting and just like the answer was right. And I could see it right on my screen. Like the problem was solved. Like that dopamine rush just really got me coming back again and again, and more willing to try different things, even if I wasn't sure if they were going to work out. And I think that that is what kept me going and what kept me learning.
1: Oh, I, you know, you said it so beautifully. And I think that's so true. And so I I just love the approach that you're taking because especially this idea of giving it your best guess and then seeing how it compares, yeah, that's how you get that real hook of dopamine going.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like one of the big misconceptions about like programming or math is that it's not a creative field, but this process of like, creating that algorithm is very, very creative. And the algorithm you make is different from another student's and then you can discuss it. And maybe even next time you solve the problem again, you might think about a different, slightly different algorithm, uh, a slightly shorter one or slightly longer one. And yeah, that's that's like the passion (laughs) I feel too from like solving these problems that Janae uh, had mentioned.
1: Well, it's kind of funny because I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, and curiously, my university did not disseminate this op-ed amongst the university. (laughs) And what the op-ed was saying was, in essence, part of the challenge of getting people to go into STEM disciplines is that professors in the humanities and social sciences will also make claims that they're the creative ones. And if you want to do a creative thing, you got to stay with them. And and it's all really self-serving and it's so untrue. And, And, but you know, they do it all the time. So, and you'll see even people just saying, well, I'm a more creative type, I really like art. You know, I love art too, but I'm, you know, you're just as creative if you're a coder as you are if you're an artist
0: yeah definitely i mean you're creating something from nothing and it's so amazing how just a few like lines on your computer can bring something into being and that's what i love about it it does feel like you're birthing something from your fingers
1: (laughs) yes yeah it is really an awesome you know what you're doing is i i think if i if i was to do it over again because you know i only have limited bandwidth for what i can learn and i I so want to be learning more about, you know, what's going on in coding nowadays versus when I was going to school, started with Fortran, you know, embarrassing, embarrassing. But so, you know, but actually a lot of what we're learning from neuroscience about how the brain learns is also growing from artificial intelligence. And that artificial intelligence is is helping us to better understand for example how the procedural system works you, you know that it works through large data sets and uh, you know our our procedural system works with what it what you give it to learn from so if you are you know let's just say your religion A as opposed to religion B your data set is all going to be all A or all B and so when you try to talk with the person from, you know, the other religion, it's almost like you're talking across purposes. You'll give an example of something that you think proves your point, And the other person will be like, no, because they've got thousands of data points they've input into their procedural system that gives them a completely different uh, value function and so you're, you know, you can't really argue with each other or talk with one another because you're being subconsciously influenced by your procedural system. You think you're thinking critically, but you're actually not because you're being biased by the that internal value function of the procedural system, which I think is just fascinating. But it happens, for example, in research. If you've had a vested interest in one approach, you're going to find Every single reason in the world to vilify someone else's approach, even if logically looking at it, most people will conclude that the other approach was better. Or if you're a professor teaching a certain discipline, you know, you will give everything about why your discipline is fantastic, even though others may find that when they try to go out in the world, working world that they maybe might have found another discipline to be a better one. So anyway, interesting stuff
0: definitely i feel like once i started coding and writing algorithms i started seeing them everywhere in everyday life like everything you know could be boiled down to cause and effect you know you do something something else happens
1: exactly exactly well you i bet you would really like judea pearl's um, book of why because it it really goes into causality So we often, when we're looking at things, we often look at how they're correlated and we say, correlation is not causation, (gasps) whoa, you know. But actually, so if correlation is not causation, what is causation? How do you get at it? How do you quantify causation? And so that book is a great one for, for getting at why and what. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that sounds really good. Do you have any advice for students who may be hesitant in entering the field of STEM? Um, Like say maybe like they want to do it, but they're feeling some self-doubt and yeah, what would you say to those students?
1: Welcome to the club, because we've all felt a lot of self-doubt. Don't, you know, try as much as you can to, to not jump too high. For example, try to do a little preliminary learning before you even begin to help yourself out. Really work as hard as you can. But also, like when you're focusing, focus intently. Do pomodoros, that 25 minutes of intense concentration followed by a five-minute break, and do those for like two hours and then take a half an hour break or something. So really try to focus, but also build in relaxation times that's really important so you don't burn out so if you can like study from eight to five or something but really study intently don't let yourself kind of halfway goof around and then start really beginning to study at seven o'clock that's a way to burn out you try to get it done during the day and have a little fun during the evenings as much as you might be able to do given COVID.
0: I think that was very much key to when I started studying how I actually made progress. Back in college, if I had to study for something, I would have a million distractions. And so, you know, the entire time I would be studying, I would check my phone or, you know, maybe maybe go off and like look at Facebook or something in the middle of studying. And so starting launch school and like after your course, doing that, like setting a timer and saying during this amount of time, you know, no distractions, it's only focused study. But then also you know letting myself have that break afterwards and
1: yeah. entering the
0: diffuse mode as you talk about and clearing my mind just letting it wander and letting it make its own connections it just really helped i guess i don't know it just changed the way that my brain worked for sure just being able oh to- yeah my brain was hungry for this kind of more technical information and i didn't really realize it until i started
1: acquiring it. Isn't that funny? But it is so true. We often just don't realize. See, learning itself makes you feel better. It increases, improves your mood. And and the reason for that is manifold. But one of them is it helps. New neurons are being born every day in, in your hippocampus. But if you're not learning anything new, they just like Hey, nothing's going on around here. I'm just gonna drop dead. So it does. So, but if you're learning something new, these new neurons actually they they survive, they thrive, they grow, and they have they serve as like a lattice for other neurons to connect into. But neurogenesis, as it turns out, is a really powerful way to help, to help you kind of get a fresh perspective on your life, on your, what you're doing. So it makes you happy. And, in fact, neurogenesis is a big, it's a hot field in uh, depression studies now because it's found to be so helpful for people. And, personally, I find that when I'm learning something, I just feel happier. I'm enjoying it, you know, and I'm enjoying life. And even the times when I'm not learning, it's, it's like it, it still oozes into that and makes me happier in general. So I, I'm not surprised that, um, you know, that learning is something you find so joyful and especially learning something very new like stem if you haven't been learning in that before
0: yeah i feel like it's kind of like exercise for my mind and then after i've had like a really good day of intense studying then i can relax and enjoy the rest of the evening so much more you know i've done uh-huh. my hours
1: <laughs> exactly and sometimes I, I do feel you know and probably I bet Mandy and Janae, I bet both of you are the same way, but I I feel that after I've done a full day of really intense thinking about things, man, I feel like I've just gone out and just run a marathon. You you know, you really feel like you've worked hard and it's all mental work, but it's, it's work nonetheless.
2: And it's rewarding work
1: too. It is. It really is. Well let's see. Any any last questions as we're wrapping up here?
0: Ooh, any last advice or stories for us?
1: <laughs> oh gosh. Well, uh no, should I tell this the Russians always used to tell me no para? which is a very lighthearted way of saying, you know too much. It's time to kill you. So, but I don't think it's ever, it's ever enough. I think that you really, you know, that learning can be such a great joy and, and being willing to be uncomfortable, you know, getting used to feeling uncomfortable, that that is one of the most powerful things you are, kind of skills or abilities you can acquire in your life is just the ability to kind of go through these little periods, you know, maybe many months where you're like, am I doing the right thing? You know, can I really do this? It's okay. That feeling that you're an imposter and you can't, you know, maybe really can't do it, that actually can help you do better and be successful where the person who walks in and says, yeah, I got this. this coding business piece of cake, that's the one you got to worry about because they're not going to be trying to change their brains. So, you know, if you feel like an imposter, you're very uncomfortable, welcome to the club. That is what is going to help make you a success.
2: Thank you so much for all of your time and all your advice.
0: All
1: right.
2: yeah, thank you so much. It was such so a fun. pleasure to have you here. Yeah.
1: It's my pleasure. And uh, all I can say is happy learning.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, Thank you. And also wanted to add, don't forget to check out Barbara's books on learning. If you haven't already, oh, a yeah. Mind for Numbers, <laughs> Mind Shift. Yeah. And, and also rewatch her course uh, on learning how to learn on Coursera. Barbara also has two new published books, Learning Like a Pro and Uncommon Sense Teaching.
1: Oh yeah, and so and these, Learn Like a Pro and Uncommon Sense Teaching, both have some really good reviews. So I think you will really very much enjoy them. Learn, learn Like a Pro is like totally condensed, everything we know from neuroscience about how you can learn effectively in a very, very short little booklet. So if you knew how hard it is to write something that's super short, but it's like really funny and it's, but you would realize that it it has virtually everything I've discussed here in a very condensed way, but really fun and way more. And it's got funny pictures too.
2: Awesome.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well. All is good then. And uh, so I, I thank you so much again for everything. And it's just been a pleasure speaking with you.